Part Three, Chapter Six, A Victory, An Island Tale, by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. Heist was astounded, looking all round as if to take the whole room to witness of this outrage. He became aware of Wang materialized in the doorway. The intrusion was as surprising as anything could be, in view of the strict regularity with which Wang made himself visible. Heyst was tempted to laugh at first. This practical comment on his affirmation, that nothing could break in on them, relieved the strain of his feelings. He was a little vexed, too. The Chinaman preserved a profound silence. "'What do you want?' asked Heyst sternly. "'Boat out there,' said the Chinaman. "'Where? What do you mean?' boat adrift in the straits? Some subtle change in Wang's bearing suggested his being out of breath, but he did not pant, and his voice was steady. No, row. It was Heist now who was startled and raised his voice. Melee man, eh? Wang made a slight negative movement with his head. Do you hear, Lena? Heist called out. Wang says there is a boat in sight. Somewhere near, apparently. Where's that boat, Wang? Round the point, said Wang, leaping into melee unexpectedly in a loud voice. White men, three. So close as that, exclaimed Heist, moving out on the veranda followed by Wang. White men. Impossible. Over the clearing, the shadows were already lengthening. The sun hung low. A ruddy glare lay on the burnt black patch in front of the bungalow, and slanted on the ground between the straight, tall mast-like trees, soaring a hundred feet or more without a branch. The growth of bushes cut off all view of the jetty from the veranda. Far away to the right, Wang's hut, or rather its dark roof of mats, could be seen above the bamboo fence, which ensured the privacy of the Alfuro woman. The Chinaman looked that way swiftly. Heist paused and then stepped back a pace into the room. White men, Lena, apparently. What are you doing? I'm just bathing my eyes a little, the girl's voice said from the inner room. Oh, yes, all right. Do you want me? No, you had better... I'm going down to the jetty. Yes, you had better stay in. What an extraordinary thing. It was so extraordinary that nobody could possibly appreciate how extraordinary it was but himself. His mind was full of mere exclamations, while his feet were carrying him in the direction of the jetty. He followed the line of the rails, escorted by Wang. "'Where were you when you first saw the boat?' he asked over his shoulder. Wang explained in melee that he had gone to the shore end of the wharf to get a few lumps of coal from the big heap, when, happening to raise his eyes from the ground, he saw the boat. A white man boat, not a canoe. He had good eyes. He had seen the boat, with the men at the oars. And here Wang made a particular gesture over his eyes, as if his vision had received a blow. He had turned at once and run to the house to report. No mistake, eh? said Heist, moving on. At the very outer edge of the belt, he stopped short. Wang halted behind him on the path, 
till the voice of number one called him sharply forward into the open. He obeyed. "'Where's that boat?' asked Heist forcibly. "'I say, where is it?' Nothing whatever was to be seen between the point and the jetty. The stretch of Diamond Bay was like a piece of purple shadow, lustrous and empty, while beyond the land the open sea lay blue and opaque under the sun. High eyes swept all over the offing till they met, far off, the dark cone of the volcano, with its faint plume of smoke broadening and vanishing everlastingly at the top, without altering its shape in the glowing transparency of the evening. "'The fellow has been dreaming,' he muttered to himself. He looked hard at the Chinaman. Wang seemed turned into stone. Suddenly, as if he had received a shock, he started, flung his arm out with a pointing forefinger, and made guttural noises, to the effect that, there, 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 he had seen a boat. It was very uncanny. Heist thought of some strange hallucination. Unlikely enough, but that a boat with three men in it should have sunk between the point and the jetty, suddenly, like a stone, without leaving as much on the surface as a floating oar, was still more unlikely. The theory of a phantom boat would have been more credible than that. Confound it, he muttered to himself. He was unpleasantly affected by this mystery, but now a simple explanation occurred to him. He stepped hastily out on the wharf. The boat, if it had existed and had retreated, could perhaps be seen from the far end of the long jetty. Nothing was to be seen. Heist let his eyes roam idly over the sea. He was so absorbed in his perplexity that a hollow sound, as of somebody tumbling about in a boat, with a clatter of oars and spars, failed to make him move for a moment. When his mind seized its meaning, he had no difficulty in locating the sound. It had come from below, under the jetty. He ran back for a dozen yards or so, and then looked over. His sight plunged straight into the stern sheets of a big boat, the greater part of which was hidden from him by the planking of the jetty. His eyes fell on the thin back of a man, doubled up over the tiller, in a queer, uncomfortable attitude of drooping sorrow. Another man, more directly below Heist, sprawled on his back from gunwale to gunwale, half off the afterthwart, his head lower than his feet. The second man glared wildly upward and struggled to raise himself, but to all appearance was much too drunk to succeed. The visible part of the boat contained also a flat leather trunk, on which the first man's long legs were tucked up nervelessly. A large earthenware jug, with its wide mouth uncorked, rolled out on the bottom boards from under the spalling man. Heist had never been so much astonished in his life. He stared dumbly at the strange boat's crew. From the first, he was positive that these men were not sailors. They wore the white drill suit of tropical civilization. But their apparition in a boat, Heist could not connect with anything plausible. The civilization of the tropics could have had nothing to do with it. It was more like those myths, current in Polynesia, of amazing strangers, who arrive in an island, gods or demons, 
bringing good or evil to the innocence of the inhabitants, gifts of unknown things, words never heard before. Heist noticed a cork helmet floating alongside the boat, evidently fallen from the head of the man doubled over the tiller, who displayed a dark, bony pole. An oar, too, had been knocked overboard, probably by the sprawling man, who was still struggling between the thwarts. By this time Heist regarded the visitation no longer with surprise, but with the sustained attention demanded by a difficult problem. With one foot poised on the string-piece, and leaning on his raised knee, he was taking in everything. The sprawling man rolled off the thwart, collapsed, and most unexpectedly got on his feet. He swayed dizzily, spreading his arms out, and uttered faintly a hoarse, dreamy, Hello! His upturned face was swollen, red, peeling all over the nose and cheeks. His stare was irrational. Heist perceived stains of dried blood all over the front of his dirty white coat, and also on one sleeve. What's the matter? Are you wounded? The other glanced down, reeled. One of his feet was inside a large pith hat, and recovering himself, let out a dismal, grating sound, in the manner of a grim laugh. Blood, not mine. Thirst the matter. Exhausted's the matter. Done up. Drink, man. Give us water. Thirst was in the very tone of his words, alternating a broken croak and a faint, throaty rustle, which just reached high ears. The man in the boat raised his hands to be helped up on the jetty, whispering, I tried. I am too weak. I tumbled down. Wang was coming along the jetty, slowly, with intent, straining eyes. Run back and bring a crowbar here. There's one lying by the coal heap. I shouted to him. The man standing in the boat sat down on the thwart behind him. A horrible coughing laugh came through his swollen lips. Crowbar? What's that for? he mumbled, and his head dropped on his chest mournfully. Meantime Heist, as if he had forgotten the boat, started kicking hard at a large brass tap projecting above the planks. To accommodate ships that came for coal and happened to need water as well, a stream had been tapped in the interior, and an iron pipe led along the jetty. It terminated with a curved end almost exactly where the stranger's boat had been driven between the piles. But the tap was set fast. Hurry up, Heist yelled to the Chinaman, who was running with the crowbar in his hand. Heist snatched it from him and, obtaining a leverage against the string piece, wrung the stiff tap round with a mighty jerk. I hope that pipe hasn't got choked, he muttered to himself anxiously. It hadn't, but it did not yield a strong gush. The sound of a thin stream, partly breaking on the gunwale of the boat and partly splashing alongside, became at once audible. It was greeted by a cry of inarticulate and savage joy. Heist knelt on the string piece and peered down. The man who had spoken was already holding his open mouth under the bright trickle. Water ran over his eyelids and over his nose, gurgled down his throat, flowed over his chin. Then some obstruction in the pipe gave way, 
and a sudden thick jet broke on his face. In a moment his shoulders were soaked, the front of his coat inundated. He streamed and dripped. Water ran into his pockets, down his legs, into his shoes. But he had clutched the end of the pipe, and, hanging on with both hands, swallowed, spluttered, choked, snorted with the noises of a swimmer. Suddenly, a curious dull roar reached Heyst's ears. Something hairy and black flew from under the jetty. A disheveled head, coming on like a cannonball, took the man of the pipe in flank, with enough force to tear his grip loose and fling him headlong into the stern sheets. He fell upon the folded legs of the man at the tiller, who, roused by the commotion in the boat, was sitting up, silent, rigid, and very much like a corpse. His eyes were but two black patches, and his teeth glistened with a death's head grin between his retracted lips, no thicker than blackish parchment glued over the gums. From him, high eyes wandered to the creature who had replaced the first man at the end of the water pipe. Enormous brown paws clutched it savagely. The wild, big head hung back, and in a face covered with a wet mass of hair, there gaped crookedly a wide mouth full of fangs. The water filled it, welled up in hoarse coughs, ran down on each side of the jaws and down the hairy throat, soaked the black pelt of the enormous chest, naked under a torn check shirt, heaving convulsively with the play of massive muscles carved in red mahogany. As soon as the first man had recovered the breath knocked out of him by the irresistible charge, a scream of mad cursing issued from the stern sheets. With a rigid, angular crooking of the elbow, the man at the tiller put his hand back to his hip. "'Don't shoot him, sir,' yelled the first man. "'Wait. Let me have that tiller. I will teach him to shove himself in front of a caballero.' Martin Ricardo flourished the heavy piece of wood, leaped forward with astonishing vigor, and brought it down on Pedro's head with a crash that resounded all over the quiet sweep of Black Diamond Bay. A crimson patch appeared on the matted hair, red veins appeared in the water, flowing all over his face, and it dripped in rosy drops off his head. But the man hung on. Not till a second furious blow descended did the hairy paws let go their grip, and the squirming body sink limply. Before it could touch the bottom boards, a tremendous kick in the ribs from Ricardo's foot shifted it forward out of sight. Whence came the noise of a heavy thud, a clatter of spars, and a pitiful grunt. Ricardo stooped to look under the jetty. Ah, dog, this will teach you to keep back where you belong, you murdering brute, you slaughtering savage you, you infidel, you robber of churches. Next time, I'll rip you open from neck to heel. You carrion-eater, esclavo. He backed a little and straightened himself up. I don't mean it, really, he remarked to Heist, whose steady eyes met his from above. He ran aft briskly. Come along, sir, it's your turn. I oughtn't to have drunk first. It's the truth, I forgot myself. A gentleman like you will overlook that, I know. As he made these apologies, Ricardo extended his hand. Let me steady you, sir. 
Slowly, Mr. Jones unfolded himself in all his slenderness, rocked, staggered, and caught Ricardo's shoulder. His henchman assisted him to the pipe, which went on gushing a clear stream of water, sparkling exceedingly against the black piles and the gloom under the jetty. "'Catch hold, sir,' Ricardo advised solicitously. "'All right?' He stepped back, and, while Mr. Jones reveled in the abundance of water, he addressed himself to Heist with a sort of justificatory speech, the tone of which, reflecting his feelings, partook of purring and spitting. They had been thirty hours tugging at the oars, he explained, and they had been more than forty hours without water, except that the night before they had licked the dew off the gunwales. Ricardo did not explain to Heist how it happened. At that precise moment, he had no explanation ready for the man on the wharf, who, he guessed, must be wondering much more at the presence of his visitors than at their plight. End chapter 6